0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Henrik. Thank you for tuning in to Red Eyes TV. Today we have an interview lined up with you guys together with Ron Unz. We're going to talk about his piece, American Pravda, Gaza, and the anti-Semitism hoax. Good stuff. Of course, Ron Ans is the main editor over there at the Uns Review. It's good to have you back, Ron. How are you doing? Hey, great to be here. Excellent. Good to uh, good to see you. So, of course, it's a big topic, and I kind of don't want to go through at least the beginning, all of the history here of what we're dealing with when it comes to Israel uh, and Gaza. This goes back uh, way further than October seventh, uh, but we had some voices in the media kind of pretending that this really just out of nowhere on October seventh. You know, Hamas attacked, and, the, and it was completely out of the blue, or whatnot. Right? We have a long history here, as out sort of land theft and kind of a campaign really against the Pal- Palestinians in the in the region. Uh, but uh, we've been offered, I'd say, very, very small-scale evidence of some of the claims from Israel's side. Or at least th- there is evidence. I'm not trying to say there's none. There's something happened, obviously. But we had these kind of embellished claims, I'd say, of you know, 40 beheaded babies. You had the um, uh, children that had been put in ovens, etc. There was other claims as well that seemed exaggerated. I'm wondering, like, do they really have to do this, or if they do have it, can they pretend it? Uh, can, can they not, uh, you know, show some of that, right? Because uh, you had this special screening as well uh, for the media, which was kind of interesting, where Israel invited certain reporters to view some of the footage, and then kind of uh, by third hand or like second hand, these reporters then were kind of told to go out and report on what they saw in the news. And we had one british journalist owen jones just the other day that kind of revealed that some of the things that they claimed they saw in the footage they didn't actually see such as the rapes and things like this uh, so that was kind of a contradiction in and of itself as well there but anyway we've had some we have had some testimony from israelis as well some of them living in these kibbutzes that were attacked and things like that and a lot of radio interviews with some of these people have we've played a couple on the show throughout the uh, last few months here really and it looks to me ron that Israel and even this is true for some military counts as well, seem to have just kind of uh, fired in some cases indiscriminately at some of these kibbutzes. And I'm not saying the majority, maybe, of people that, that they claim Israelis that died uh, on October 7th were from the military, but in the wake of that, they seem to have actually uh, definitely increased that number. So, so what do you say of that in terms of like how how they, Israel have managed this uh, this conflict so far?
1: Well, that, that's certainly true. And even the raw numbers changed fairly dramatically. In other words, for nearly a month, the figure had been 1,400 Israelis who'd been killed by the Hamas in the Hamas attack. And then suddenly, I'd actually been a bit skeptical of that number, you know, since there was quite a lot of evidence that some of the bodies of the alleged victims were actually Hamas militants who'd been killed by the Israeli forces and were misclassified as Israeli victims. And you know, yet after a month of the 1400 figure being almost universally presented everywhere in the media, they suddenly sharply reduced it to 1200. So in other words, you know, the Israeli government has admitted that their initial figures were wrong for really probably three or four weeks. Now, aside from that, one of the key issues is how many of the unarmed civilian victims were actually killed by Israeli military forces rather than by the Hamas attackers. And uh, the whole thing about it is there's quite a lot, of, you know, just as you mentioned, there's quite a lot of firsthand testimony by some of the individual survivors of the attack that most that uh, most of the Israeli victims at least in their vicinity were killed by tank fire or hellfire missiles by the Israeli forces when they attacked the militants. Now, uh, Israel for about 40 years now has had a very controversial policy called the Hannibal Directive, which it's documented, anybody can check it. Uh, The Israelis in the past had a situation where when one or two or three Israeli soldiers were captured by Hamas or by other Palestinian militants, they eventually were then traded for large numbers of Palestinians imprisoned by the Israelis. And so for that reason, Israel adopted a new policy, I think it was in, 1984 and 1986 that if any israeli were captured by palestinian by palestinian militant and couldn't be easily rescued it was necessary for the israeli and the militants if necessary to all be killed by the israeli forces in other mm. words it was utterly important that no israeli captives ever be successfully taken by palestinian militants so in this case the evidence seems to be that in some of the cases, for example, with the kibbutzim that were taken over by Palestinian militants, the Israeli forces realized that they would have a very difficult time rescuing any of the hostages you know, without suffering very heavy casualties themselves. So after a few hours of indecision, they finally decided to use tank fire and Apache Hellfire missiles to basically blast the buildings and kill everybody. And, and that's been reported by a few of the very, the very few surviving hostages. Uh, one, one of the kibbutz in that, you know, there's they're basically, uh, you're probably talking about that radio testimony of one of the 12 captives who was taken, who ended up surviving, explaining how the attacks from the Israeli forces ended up killing everybody in the crossfire. Yeah, that's right. Also. There's a great deal of visual evidence, because when you look at the buildings, for example, in the uh, kibbutzim that have been destroyed, those buildings clearly were destroyed by tank fire or missile fire. In other words, high explosive attacks rather than the small arms that the Palestinian militants had. So in other words, you know, it's very clear that they were destroyed by missiles or tank fire rather than by the bullets or you know whatever hand grenades that the palestinians would have had and in fact you know again i mean the israelis basically took foreign journalists around to video the scenes of devastation it's clear the buildings were destroyed by the sorts of high explosive attacks also and i think you're showing on your screen right now there there's footage of apache helicopters yeah basically blasting any of the cars in the vicinity of the um, the dance festival, mm-hmm. because they simply could, it couldn't distinguish between the Palestinian militants and anybody else. And they basically, especially in the first few hours after the attack, the attack was so surprising and so shocking. And the Israelis were taken by surprise that they basically reacted in a very trigger-happy sort of way. And in fact, uh, there's the testimony of one of the helicopter pilots saying that they had a very difficult time distinguishing the militants from Israeli civilians. And so they basically shot at anything that moved. And in fact, afterwards, there are scenes that were shown of something like 100 or 150 burned-out Israeli civilian vehicles that clearly had been destroyed by Hellfire missiles not by anything that militants had. And in fact, Max Blumenthal in some of his uh, podcasts ended up showing the scenes of some of the devastation and saying it looked exactly like the same scenes of hellfire missile damage in Gaza or in other parts of uh, the Palestine area. So in other words, it's very clear that at least many of the Israeli hostages were killed by the Israeli forces that, you know, simply gave up on rescuing them. So, you know, for that reason, it's difficult to say exactly how many individual civilians were killed by Hamas and how many were killed by the Israeli military once it got involved. But it's quite possible that a majority, possibly even a large majority, of the unarmed Israeli civilians who died, died at the hands of their own forces. And in fact, one piece of evidence supporting that is that there are the firsthand eyewitness testimony of some of the individual surviving hostages who explained that they really were treated quite respectfully. They certainly weren't, you know, shot or killed by, you know, because, I mean, they were intended to be hostages, to be exchanged for the thousands of Palestinians currently held in Israeli jails and prisons. Yeah. And so, you know, for that reason, it's difficult to say what the exact numbers were. But another factor also is that a certain number of the Israeli civilians involved obviously were reservists and probably were armed and in some cases were said to have engaged in shootouts with the Hamas militants. So if we're talking about unarmed Israeli civilians killed by Hamas, the numbers might be as low as a couple of hundred, possibly even low as one hundred out of the 1,200 total Israeli victims, probably half of them or more were either Israeli military forces or Israeli police. For example, there was that one police station close to the Gaza border that was seized by Hamas and then blasted by the Israeli forces, killing all of the uh, prisoners that had been taken among the police and also the Hamas militants. And so, you know, for that reason, it's very unlikely that the numbers of Israeli civilians killed Bahamas are anything remotely as high as six or 700. It's probably more like a couple of hundred, maybe even as low as 100. And so, you know, that simply emphasized the tremendously disproportionate nature of the Israeli attack on Gaza in retaliation. Because, you know, we're talking about a situation where probably at least 50, close to 16,000 individual identified victims Have been found and named by the Hamas, by the um, Gaza Health Ministry. But there are thousands of other Gazan civilians, probably buried under the rubble. And virtually all of the Hamas casualties have been civilians. And the reason that's easy to know that is that 70% of all the victims have been women or children. And 70% of Gaza's population, roughly, is women and children. So, you know, Hamas itself is entirely male. And so if a substantial fraction of the victims in Gaza had been Hamas militants, then the number of men who'd been killed would be much higher than it is. So it seems very clearly indiscriminate mass bombings and missile attacks. And, you know, it's clearly one of the worst slaughters of helpless civilians in modern times, and probably by far the worst televised slaughter. Of such civilians to take place in the history of the world.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about uh, kind of the, the optics, I guess, of that and why Israel seems to be losing that. But you you mentioned the names. I remember can't find the source now. Uh, maybe I'll find it a post. But it was a wall of names, right? It was for, for 1400 or something like that. And some people actually went through and highlighted, as you said, the the colonels and the police officers and you know people like that, and it was like. I think uh, six hundred or so names, someone said, which is you know almost about half or something like that, that were actually part of that. Uh, but the question is, you mentioned the the Hannibal uh, directive and these kinds of things. There, first, of all, like, is this then incompetence or is it just that then they can kind of just rack up the numbers and they th- they're turning even though they're, they're, it's this is you know not, it's not even collateral damage. This is you know friendly fire, whatever you want to call it, essentially, right? Uh, they're shooting their own, but that they can still use that to rack up the numbers and look at how many people died because of this, right? Because that's, regardless, that's how Israel ended up using it, right?
1: Wasn't it? Right. I'm not sure if there really was intention that way. In other words, if they could have easily rescued the hostages, I think they would have done so. You know, I mean, Israeli public opinion would be incredibly angry i mean there would be a gigantic backlash if it were felt they deliberately killed the israeli civilians simply to increase the number of victims yeah i mean the truth is the Hamas militants were well entrenched in the buildings on the kibbutz and the israeli forces would have probably suffered serious casualties if they tried to go in after them and probably would have failed anyway Mm -hmm. and the hostages probably would mostly been killed so you know under those circumstances they simply decided the best approach was simply to blast everything with tank fire tank cannon fire and with apache hellfire missiles and certainly early on i mean a large fraction of the civilians killed obviously were individuals who had been at the dance festival yeah were blasted in the cars and there i think it was simply that as the hel- one of the helicopter pilots admitted they simply had no idea which cars were only occupied by Israeli civilians, which were filled with Hamas militants and which were filled with Hamas militants and Israeli captives. So, I mean, they basically just shot anything that moved. And I mean, the, the thing about it is, you know, the attack was so shocking and Israel was taken by surprise. In other words, I mean, some of Israel's best military units suffered very heavy casualties, unexpectedly heavy casualties compared to by all accounts, what Hamas had thought that they would succeed in doing. And so under those circumstances, with so many Israeli troops having been killed, with bases having been overrun, I mean, the Israelis obviously panicked. And their, uh, their Apache helicopters just blasted anything they thought might be a Hamas unit and killed a lot of Israelis in the process.
0: What do you make of the uh, warning from Egypt early on? There's some reporting. This is Times of Israel uh, that intelligence officials in Egypt uh, says Israel ignored repeated warnings of something big. I'm still trying to piece that together. Like they have uh, supposedly, right, such a great intelligence services, and they have everything is monitored. The the walls, essentially, uh, you know, around Gaza and all that. It's like one of the most surveilled areas in the world, I believe. And here, an Egyptian official said. Um, which apparently often serves as a mediator between Israel and Hamas, uh, had spoken repeatedly with the Israelis about something big, but they hadn't elaborated on it. And then some of the suggestions was that, well, Netanyahu, they looked the other way. Maybe it was hubris. Maybe they thought, ah, they'll never do anything, blah, blah, blah. But regardless, they've seemed to be... There seem to have been warnings, but it was ignored, but then they were still caught by surprise. Huh? How do you piece this together? Is there any contradictions here in your I, mind? I think
1: the emphasis on those warnings from Egypt probably is more than it should be, unless more information comes out. In other words, you know, it's unclear. For example, it, it's quite possible that the Egyptians had warned of Hamas doing something many times in the past. You know, there's the old question of crying wolf. Yeah. In other words, without specific warnings, on the nature of the attack, the size of the attack, the timing of the attack, simply saying that they suspected Hamas was up to something big. You know, if, if they'd issued half a dozen previous warnings over the last year or two, and nothing had ever happened, the Israelis obviously would have ignored it. And also, I mean, Israel prides itself on having one of the world's best intelligence services, you know, having the, uh, the sort of service that, you know, I mean, the notion of the Egyptians knowing something about what was going on in heavily surveilled uh, Gaza that the Israelis wouldn't know is probably something the Israelis would disregard. it. Now, what's interesting is just in the last couple of days, a much more detailed account has come out in the Israeli press saying that what amounted to a very detailed dis- description of exactly what happened had come to the attention of the Israeli authorities a year before and it was dismissed by the israeli government in other words for apparently a year the israelis had had what amounted to you know exactly the sort of plan in other words the israeli authorities apparently regarded the planned hamas attack as being so large so grandiose that they were sure it was beyond their resources that hamas was basically bluffing and so you know it went up the chain of command it was totally ignored and so you know but basically if Israel had disregarded a very detailed intelligence attack from their own local people on the scene for a year and nothing had happened during that year. It's very easy to imagine that if then Egypt came up with some sort of vague warning about Hamas planning something in the near future, the Israelis would then disregard it. And, you know, I mean, the whole thing is the Israelis had simply made a a sort of intelligence decision that Hamas had given up on any sort of attack. I mean, there had been no major breakout of Hamas for years. Hamas, they felt, had basically agreed, had, you know, expressed its willingness to avoid any confrontation with Israel in return for some of these uh, work permits, so that you know a large number of Gazans could work in Israel. And that was sort of the intelligence decision, the ruling that was made at the very high level. So, you know, then when these reports came out a year before on all the training evidence that Hamas was training for something, the Israeli authorities had just ignored it at the time. And a year had gone by, Hamas had done absolutely nothing. And that convinced the Israeli authorities that they'd been right for a year. And so that's why I I think they were so taken by surprise when this huge attack happened. Now, it's perfectly possible that they might have suspected that at some point, Hamas would launch a raid, you know, a dozen militants trying to break through the fence, maybe taking a couple of Israelis hostage. But I mean, that's the sort of thing that they felt that they could very easily cope with. And it, you know, even if they suspected something like that might be in the works, what actually happened was a hundred times larger. It was so different in magnitude, it was different in kind. And I mean, basically. The Hamas militants were able to use very innovative tactics. Their drones to disable the cell phone towers that uh, controlled the Israeli surveillance meth- uh, machinery, disable the automatic firing machine guns. I mean, basically, they used tactics that the Israelis had not expected, in ways that they not expected, and the size of the attack: fifteen hundred militants breaking through the fence in so many different places was obviously something totally beyond any Israeli expectations. And that's why the Israelis were so panicked initially. Now, one reason I'm very skeptical of some of these conspiracy theories floating around, that this was a deliberate allowance to have it happen on the part of someone like Netanyahu, is that you know? Everybody agrees that Netanyahu's political life is over. I mean, his popularity in Israel, yeah. I think, is now below single digits. I think it's down to like five percent approval. So, in other words, Netanyahu's career has been destroyed, and it ended. And this was the greatest military disaster in fifty years of Israeli history. Not only that, but the fact that it occurred despite Israel Israel having allegedly such effective intelligence machinery surveillance machinery, tremendously effective Mossad, Shinbeth, Unit 8200 intelligence Mm -hmm. services, has destroyed the reputation of Israel for, you know, basically its effectiveness. And I mean, and that's something it would take Israel a very long time to recover. Bombing the helpless civilians of Gaza does not repair the damage done to the credibility of the Israeli military and the credibility of the Israeli intelligence services. Or Israel and in and of
0: itself, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. Which, which is interesting because, you know, part of me is like, okay, well, you know, regardless of how this exactly panned out and stuff like that, and this is, you know, fog of war, it's very difficult to know. There's a lot of, well, you know, supposedly, or they probably did this, or, you know, this is what one source said, et cetera. A lot of that, as always, right? So it's hard to kind of uh, discern. But regardless, i was like well they're obviously wanting to use this in some kind of capacity maybe something they've always wanted to do which was to really root out hamas and go into gaza and i mean and we're seeing the cascading effect of this now we'll talk more about this later here but like now, Europe and America is expected to take in all these Palestinians and so forth. And I, I think they even if they see this is bad optically or whatever, they kind of have to move. You know what I mean? They're just like, well, this is a one chance we have. Let's do it. That's how I see it anyway. And they, if they could uh, get their way, they would probably just clear Gaza out of the Palestinian population altogether and just annex it, to be honest. What do you think?
1: Oh, sure. But I mean, and, you know, part of it also is simply that Netanyahu's interests are desperately trying to stay in office as long as power is possible. I mean, his approval rating is so low, once the conflict ends, once the fighting ends, he's a political goner. And the investigations, as they come out with these facts, that you know Israel had pretty much the entire plan reported from their local people on the ground for a year and did nothing, never alerted their people, never took proper action. I mean, that will further damage Netanyahu's position. So I think what Netanyahu might be doing in effect is rolling the dice. In other words, if he can use this opportunity, this disaster as an opportunity to clear the Palestinians out of Gaza and the West Bank, he might hope that sort of strategic generational victory would be enough to salvage his reputation among the hardline voters who are his base. I doubt that would be the case, but I mean, that's basically his one chance. And yeah. I mean, Netanyahu knows perfectly well that once basically he's out of office, he's probably in prison for the rest of his life. I mean, the tremendous hostility of half of Israel's population towards him because of, you know, all of the corruption scandals around him probably mean it's the end of his career and also the end of his freedom. So mm-hmm. while I certainly doubt that he... Allowed this to happen deliberately. Allowed this huge military disaster to happen deliberately. He certainly is desperate to keep the fighting going as long as possible. To basically, so there stay is, out
0: of prison. A, so there is a benefit to him. Oh, exactly. Regardless, right? Yeah, exactly. So, w- what what does this say, just quickly here, maybe about the then basically the military, Israeli military intelligence and thing? It's not kind of the apparatus that we that we've been led to believe that it is. Is that one of the conclusions too?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, basically, you know, uh, most people around the world, probably whether supportive of Israel or hostile to Israel, would have agreed that Israel, the Mossad, you know, at 8200, it's probably among the world's best intelligence services, certainly one of the two or three best. And it's one thing, for example, if they fell down on the job on something in another part of the world, but for them to have been taken totally by surprise on their own doorstep and lose hundreds of their own military men in a Hamas attack is just a disastrous blow to Israel's reputation. In other words, yeah. why would someone buy Israeli surveillance technology if they've seen that it's failed on their own doorstep? Where they had every access, you know, drone footage, everything, mm. you know, to be able to see what was going on in Gaza. So, I mean, overall, it's a huge, huge setback, I think, to Israel, Israel's reputation. And, you know, again, if it leads to a wider war and brings in Hezbollah, brings in possibly Iran, brings in even possibly Turkey, I mean, the end result of that is quite possibly the destruction of Israel. And so, you know, it's the sort of thing. You can imagine Netanyahu rolling the dice and simply risking everything in hopes of salvaging his own reputation and staying out of prison. But taking those sorts of risks as an individual are very different than taking those sorts of risks for a country. So I just find it extremely doubtful that there was any sort of conspiratorial plan on the part of the Israeli security forces to let this happen. I mean, for one thing is, there are certainly a lot of reports that large segments of Mossad and the other security forces are very hostile to Netanyahu. In fact, there were some reports they were organizing the demonstrations against Netanyahu Mm -hmm. to try to drive him from office. Hmm. So if there was any even slight evidence that Netanyahu deliberately allowed this attack to take place, I think there would have been massive leaks and Netanyahu would have been driven from office immediately. So, you know, it's one thing, for example, for everybody to admit that they made a terrible mistake. You know, Netanyahu, the intelligence services, the military, that they were caught napping, that they failed on the job. But I mean, that's very different than anybody arguing that it was deliberately done by anybody either in the intelligence services or on the other side with Netanyahu. So, you know, again, I'm just very skeptical of those sorts of conspiratorial theories. There's just a lot of incompetence. In fact, this is exactly what happened almost 50 years ago to the day with the Yom Kippur War, Mm -hmm. where the Egyptians, again, stole a march on the Israelis, took the Israeli forces by surprise, and gained a lot of territory and successes before the Israelis were able to mobilize and then, you know, Restore an even uh, playing field. So, I mean, the whole thing about it is, uh, Israel's leaders are notori- and Israel's military, are notoriously arrogant, and basically feeling that you know they had nothing to fear from a ragtag band of underfunded militants in Gaza. And so, I mean, basically, they simply didn't believe that there was any risk from them, and they were taken by surprise, and they certainly never expected that some of their crack military units would suffer hundreds of losses at the hands of lightly armed militants of Hamas. I mean, I, I think the Israelis lost more soldiers in basically the first 24 hours than they lost in nearly the previous 50 years combined, all the previous wars combined, or the numbers are very comparable. So, you know, 24 hours versus 50 years. And again, it shows, you know, the tremendous vulnerability of a military, if it basically doesn't take its opponent seriously. I mean, also for example, when they overran the bases, Hamas supposedly said that you know the bases nearby, the military bases, the sentries were asleep or not on duty. They were easy to overrun. Hamas was very surprised that they were over, able to overrun the bases so easily. And then, for example, the general at one of the bases ended up then hiding in a blast-proof cellar and calling in airstrikes to kill all of the militants and the prisoners of his own men mm-hmm. that they helped, yep. just blasting the base. And, I mean, that's not the sort of thing you do unless you're completely taken by surprise. And so, I mean, in fact, uh, the Hamas the Isra- the militants got much farther inside Israel than they had expected or anybody expected. In fact, there were also hundreds of ordinary Gazans we then use that opportunity to go into Israel and launch attacks as well. I mean, I think it was probably 1,500 Hamas militants in the actual attack, and then another thousand or 1,500 ordinary Gazans who used the opportunity, used the holes in the fences as a way to attack Israel after all the years that they suffered at the hands of the Israeli forces.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll say this: they've they've grown up like that uh, in in Gaza. They, they they've some of these kids you know they were (laughs) this is how they lived all their life they've they've trained for these kinds of things i mean it's not really historic you know it's sort of comparative but it's like you know when america comes to you know fight the Viet Cong or something like you know i mean it they are vastly less technology less arms and things like that but they're much more much more cunning they know their terrain they know what to do in it in a different way so that's definitely understandable. Now, uh, I, I wanted to, and I want to, you know, we'll come back to this later in terms of, well, regardless, you know, they're using this, what's the purpose, what do they want, what would Israel want to do? And it's one thing maybe to say, well, Netanyahu is trying to save, salvage kind of his own reputation or he's gambling for his own sake here. That that would be interesting to me if he's not even doing, if he, he does not have Israel, you know, at all kind of as the main objective here, which I frankly thought he would, uh, but it might be more personal than that. And we, we can come more, more on that later, But uh, I want to talk about this thing of how you know, Greenblatt of the ADL have reacted and things like that and some of the other type of how things have changed, if you will, environmentally, <laughs> I mean, That's not right. well, demographically, too, for that matter, uh, we'll get to that. But basically, Greenblatt is freaking out over what's happening at, at university campuses with more support now for Palestine than for Israel. He, he there's clips of him out there wanting to censor and take control of the narrative on TikTok. X, of course, with Elon Musk or, Musk or Twitter has been a big issue for them as well. To try to basically, you know, label any criticism of Israel and, and Zionism and in the extension Jewish activism uh, as, as anti-Semitism. And try to control the narrative and, and, and rein all this in because they're seeing that the narrative is changing. And part of that, I can show a graph. This is what they showed on CNN, I think, of, of, of the ages as well of how the support this is the question was Israel's military response to Hamas attacks is fully justified uh... you know and here's the broken down by age 65 years and older 81 percent says it was justified what israel did and then as you can see progressively it gets lower and lower as you go down in the ages now part of that i'd say as well is because of the changing demographics right a lot of left-wing opinions overall at university campuses and things like this uh... but at the same time having said that a lot of these kids—they're watching, you know, TikTok videos. They're watching social media. They're not getting as much information as they used to do. From you know, they're certainly not watching Fox News. Maybe some of them are watching CNN or MSNBC or whatever. But it's 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 dropping, and they're no matter how you know what the reasons are for this, and we could talk about that. But they are losing that support, and more and more people are are, are seeing what's happening, and that's significant to them. And and I think that's another reason why they kind of have to make their move now, right? If they want to do something while they have the upper establishment, while they have the political class mostly on their side, while APAC is strong and, you know, some of these other lobby groups, they kind of have to move, right? H- how do you see this, Ron?
1: Oh, I, I certainly agree with that. I, I think probably the biggest factor is the channels by which those individual age cohorts receive their information. In other words, I, I don't watch TV myself, but I would assume that the mainstream media, the main television broadcasters, are still lockstep step behind the Israeli narrative they are yeah. well. when you're talking about, for example, social media, people get for people watching videos on YouTube, videos on Twitter, videos on all these other sources. I mean, they're seeing absolutely horrifying scenes of devastation in Gaza. And, and, you know, that poll was taken basically October 12th, so, I mean, almost a month ago. I mean, before, more than a couple of thousand Gazans had probably been killed, more than a few thousand Gazans. And now all these scenes of massive devastation, I would think, would have shifted the numbers even more. So, you know, it's a question of, uh, unless the pro-Israel side can really gain much greater control over all of the channels of information, you know, TikTok, Twitter... YouTube, I mean, I I think those numbers will become more extreme over time. And, you know, again, there are all these sorts of propaganda efforts that are still being made to get a unified message out there. But I I think they're failing. In other words, I mean, we're talking about a situation where probably 20,000 Gazan civilians have already been killed, and, you know, thousands and thousands of children have been killed, you know, in massive bombing, massive missile attacks. Uh, of the Gaza, you know, leveling 60,000 buildings in Gaza, a densely populated urban area. And so, I mean, the the scenes of devastation are so enormous, and the message basically is so devastating for the recent ideological framework that Americans have been presented with over the last years, that I, I think it would be very difficult for Israel to recover it's standing on these issues. I, you know, again, it's a question of whether media power is sufficient to shift the reality in that way. And right. I, I think it might work with older age cohorts that get yeah. their information you know, straight from the main television networks. But I think it's just very, very difficult with people who get their information in other sources.
0: Yeah, and well, even then, as they try to control the narrative, people see that, and then they see, well, that's more evidence that they are losing the, uh, the narrative. And they're, t- you know, what I mean, they're trying to tighten the news tighter and tighter, and people are basically slipping out of that and and speaking to that issue. Uh, a couple of stories here: U.S. Jewish groups fund found, or found, sorry, uh, quote the Ten Seven Project to fight denial of Hamas atrocities, an if- initiative also intended to provide more complete and accurate information about the Israel-Hamas war in real time for policymakers and the American public. This is kind of like, um, now. I know that they have, uh, that there are videos now of people that are saying that they've been approached by, uh, you know, basically PR firms and Israeli PR firms to like speak well of Israel online and they've been offered money. You know, there's things like that coming out as well. So it's kind of, This is actually a little reminiscent of what happened during the COVID days, but whatever, be be that as it may. They're trying from the bottom in that way, but they're also trying from the top, but that's kind of all they have. Let's make another group, a pressure group. Let's make another lobby group. This will this will make it. This Will this work? I don't think this will work. People are on to this, aren't they, at
1: large? It's very difficult.
0: I mean, and, and that's why,
1: for example, some of the early atrocity stories that came out were so extreme. They were meant to sort of tilt the balance. I mean, the thing about 40 beheaded babies that was utter fraud from the first moment, or for example, a baby baked in an oven. And now all these stories about alleged rapes that are coming out. In other words, the, the few hostages that have spoken online say that they were treated very respectfully. By their hamas captors in other words you know that really was shocking i mean the, when they basically were interviewed by israeli radio israeli television and they basically said that you know the hamas militants treated them with tremendous respect i mean they basically were treated yeah there were well. good
0: food there were medical exactly. uh, needs attended and to exactly. etc yeah, yeah and
1: so you know when those clips became very widespread over the internet people certainly realized that some of those other stories probably were fraudulent and, and then basically the the headed baby stories disappeared all these other stories disappeared and you know to try to invent new atrocity stories um more than a month after the attack I mean, it's just almost two months after the attack it's just really ridiculous so yeah. i i think they're fighting a losing battle but on the other hand they do have really complete control over the commanding heights of the American political and media system. In other words, they control all the mainstream media outlets. They control virtually every member of Congress, every prominent political figure. And I mean, they were even able to intimidate Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, into basically censoring, you know, very mild leftist progressive slogans that have been around for years. I mean, basically what makes the whole issue so ridiculous is that for generations, the ruling likud party and its origin and its egun uh, roots have been talking about an israel from the river to the sea yeah. in other words a greater israel in which all non jews would be expelled or totally subjugated that's been the position of the ruling likud party of israel for three generations four generations and meanwhile leftists or progressives over the last 20 or 30 years have captured shared that same slogan and talked about from the river to the sea, a single unified democratic secular state with equal rights for Jews and non-Jews. I mean, a very sort of mild progressive perspective. I mean, you know, certainly with Jews having total equal rights. And Elon Musk was persuaded that that was a genocidal slogan that would immediately get you banned from Twitter if you used it. Also, for example, talking about Israel being a settler state would get you immediately banned from Twitter, even though prominent Israelis have always described themselves as creating a settler state. So in other words, when the same language precisely is used by one side, it's described as being totally impermissible on Twitter, gets you immediately banned. While when it's used on the other side, it's basically the Israeli government. And you you do have many elements of the Israeli government, even including Prime Minister Netanyahu, using what really amounts to genocidal language towards the Palestinians. In other words, for example, when Netanyahu, who's not religious himself, but has a very strongly religious base, identifies the Palestinians with the tribe of Amalek. I mean, the Hebrew God requires that all members, all of the seed of Amalek be exterminated, down to the youngest newborn baby. And so, you know, when you're using language like that and committing a gigantic massacre of the unarmed civilians by of Gaza, with you know, fifteen or twenty thousand of them already killed. I mean, that that's extremely strong language that reasonably could be described as genocidal. And yet, he certainly is not banned from Twitter. Well. leftists or liberals who talk about a secular democratic state with equal rights for Jews and non-Jews are banned on grounds of advocating genocide, which is just ridiculous. I mean, basically, you know, Elon Musk has obviously been intimidated by a massive boycott that was organized against him after he expressed support for some tweet that somebody made, you know, criticizing uh, Zionist forces for their hypocrisy or something like that. And, you know, and that situation is certainly true of many other platforms. For example, TikTok, even though it was founded in China, has been intimidated, again, into censoring most sort of questionable statements criticizing Israel or attacking Israel's right to exist or anything like that. So I mean, we are talking about a very one-sided landscape in all of the media, including social media. But even that social media landscape is nothing like, for example, the landscape people have seen for generations with the major television networks and, you know, what everybody sees in front of them. So I mean, it's the sort of situation where, you know, I think it's difficult for the Israelis to keep control over the American public on these issues. But the other question is, what would American critics be able to do? In other words, with both parties so strongly controlled, by the israel lobby you know it's, it's unclear really what they can do except stay home and you know i mean that certainly puts pressure on the democratic party on biden's re-election chances because with his base being much more divided on this issue he's obviously worried about you know losing any chance of winning re-election yeah but you know it's not clear how even that stacks up against the tremendous control That the Israel lobby has over the entire Democratic Party.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. Um, And uh, again, younger generations coming up there, they're not favorable of that. And, and, you know, there's there's a whole lot of discussion here, obviously, but like, yeah, the demographics are changing in the West, right? because of open borders and of course a lot of those are of course you know Jewish activist groups such as you know Paideia and Israel and you have hias you know these kinds of things it's not only that but it's very disproportionate if you measure the amount of influence that they that those groups have there's plenty of churches accepting refugees and there's catholic groups and all that kind of stuff right uh, but you'd kind of be expected to have some of that considering how many of those um, a multitude there is right uh, but a lot of them have been very powerful, very uh, influential. And then ironically, and now this is what's kind of you know b- biting them uh, in the rear end, so to speak. Uh, it's coming back at them. All this support now for Palestine in, in countries have gotten a lot of Jewish activists and many of them, of course, are on the far left. There's some there's some there's a right wing overlap and we could you know we could talk about that later, but a lot of them who are, are kind of leftists and they're more maybe more secular, maybe not as religious. Uh, they have like they're they're looking at this and thinking, well, you were supposed to be kind of our allies, right? Well, what ha- what happened here? And it also shows maybe their these left wing activists' allegiance that ultimately they are very concerned about Israel and and being pro Israel. Uh, despite the fact of its policies being, you know, <laughs> right-wing and hardline, nationalistic, they have walls and all these kinds of things. But for Western countries, we're expected to keep our borders wide open and, and of course, you know, let everybody in and accept everybody kind of thing. So that's been a very interesting evolution, if you will, to watch. It's kind of it's humorous on on one end, but it's also, uh, you know, for 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 us in the West, it's sad as well because it's like really is this you know that you, you couldn't see this coming and now, and now you've you know helped at least to change uh, the makeup of our countries you've turned a more left wing from all the way from you know the frankfurt school and so called cultural marxism uh, you know infesting into the academic environments and the universities and stuff into you know the media and it, it just extend further uh, now all of a sudden we're expected to flip on this have have you observed this as well and there's certainly like clear examples you can pull out there's some from the uk recently uh, David Aronovich was one of them what was the other guy's name uh, was another David uh, There's a couple of examples I can't, I can't think of how many there are now but we've covered them in the show um, throughout the last couple of months when this has happened and a lot of them have been very disappointed but isn't this they've, they've helped to create this environment am I am I wrong oh sure uh, but I, I think
1: you have to distinguish between the demographic changes in Europe versus the demographic changes in the United States in other words in Europe a large fraction of the influx of immigrants over the last 20 or 30 years has been from the Muslim world. For example, you know, if we're talking about France, if we're talking about even Germany, if we're talking about Britain, and obviously Muslims feel a much closer connection to Palestinians, you know, I mean, many of them, for example, are watching um, are watching, for example, Al Jazeera and other networks that you know are portraying <clears throat> the tremendous disaster inflicted yeah. on the Palestinians and all the deaths. Also, for example, with the Alaska Mosque issue in uh, Jerusalem. So, you know, for example, it's very natural that there would be an extremely strong Muslim reaction against what's going on here. In the case of the United States, only a tiny sliver of America's changed demographics over the last 20 or 30 years have been Muslims. In other words, the vast majority of immigrants have been from Asia or especially from Latin America, you know, Christians or, you know, for example, Hindus in some cases. And and there I think there's much less direct connection to the Palestinians. Now, you do have a situation, for example, where a lot of the rhetoric or ideological framework presented in the last 5 or 10 or 20 years has been emphasizing the horrors of inflicting suffering upon people of color, the unity of people of color. And so, you know, there's certainly an element of that. But I I don't think it's really necessarily that strong. And I think, for example, in most cases, if you look at the actual voting patterns, for example, uh, of uh, Latin American immigrants in the United States, they're in most cases not that different from whites of the same age and the same region. So, for example, California Latinos are voting roughly the same as California whites. Texas Latinos as Texas whites and around the country. And obviously, you know, Latinos are overwhelmingly Christian. I mean, very, very few of them are Muslim. So there, I think it's probably more a question of age being the main factor and the fact that they get their channels of information through social media rather than ABC, CBS, and NBC and Fox. So I I think you have to distinguish again between Europe and the United States. So, you know, there's certainly a factor in both cases. And, you know, in, in many cases, say among certain groups, like for example, blacks traditionally have been much more supportive of Muslim causes, partly out of their sort of hostility towards the American establishment. So you certainly see a good deal of that And, uh, you know, among, for example, members of Congress or, for example, some of the individuals in the elite Ivy League schools. But I, I don't think you see as much of that among Asians or among Latinos, aside from the fact that because they're young, they're getting their information from a different source and are less wedded to 30 or 40 years of propaganda that they've received about the Middle East conflict.
0: Very good. Now, uh, let me see. Let's let's do, cover these two things real quick, and then we'll take a short break here between those segments. But, you know, before I, I showed the story of them setting up their uh, 10-7 project there, the 10-7 project, and you had a number of organized backers, uh, they say here, but a number of other organizations kind of joining in on this, the American Jewish Committee, uh, which initiated the project. You also have then APAC, right, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, the Jewish Federations of North America, the Anti-Defamation League, and the conference of presidents of major american jewish organizations you have those joining up for the 10-7 project which is another thing and even a few months ago before that they had the another uh, group the j7 kind of modeled the Greenblad went on israeli television talking about this about how it's modeled after the g7 right so it was britain france germany argentina canada australia and obviously the 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 us here then part of this task force to you know combat anti-semitism and then finally, in the wake of this, uh, the House have now uh, passed a resolution declaring anti-Zionism a form of anti-Semitism. Uh, and then uh, I guess a caveat here that you mentioned: some some Democrats are critical. We'll see if it passes or not, if it goes through. But the point is that they, they keep trying this, and and the method is. Not only information control or counter propaganda, or just you know, do you have a direct line with media, which they already have. You know, the ADA, Greenblatt. I presume he just have these people on speed dial. He can get on there whenever he wants and, and then talk to them. You know, what I mean, and declare what the official view is. What we're sh- supposed to believe. But the measure here, really, and it speaks to the power that you mentioned before, right? Like, it's one thing that if you if you don't have the popular support of like you know 18 to 25 year olds on your side. Sure, one day they'll grow up and they'll be the politicians. Then it's a completely different story, which is goes back to what I talked about that you know they have to have made their move by then. And we'll talk more about that later in part two. But this seems to be okay. Let's let's criminalize this essentially. Let, let's pass laws that says it's forbidden. Uh, if, if, number one equating you know uh you know anti-zionism then that's anti-semitism you criticizing israel or the israeli government is also anti-semitism but this goes down the line and so that's kind of where where the criticism for many ends but i'd say why shouldn't we be allowed to criticize jewish ngo groups or jewish activists that are doing things that are changing the demographic makeup of our countries right uh but these things are, are what they try to outlaw there's this long definition on the U.S. State Department's website of what anti-Semitism is, and I think they're, if they've not actually officially adopted that as the official, uh, you know, kind of definition, they're, they're about to. But we've seen the goalpost move on this, Ron, uh, and, and this seems to be the path forward for them, that basically, let's pass laws and let's see if we can stop that. I don't th- see that working at all, I think it's going to backfire, as many of these other projects have. How do you see this, and, and where do you think this is going?
1: Well, I mean, they're obviously facing a very difficult landscape of reality. In other words, when people know that, you know, probably 20,000 Gazan civilians have been killed. I mean, take, for example, the conflict in Ukraine. Every now and then, a Russian missile would misfire, hitting aimed at a military target, and a dozen Ukrainian civilians would be killed, or 20, or sometimes even 50. In many cases, it turned out to be a Ukrainian missile that had made the mistake. But I mean, the whole thing about it is when, you know, there was tremendous media coverage of 10 or 15 or 20 Ukrainian civilians killed allegedly by Russia. And now we're seeing 20,000 Gazans killed with absolutely no effort to be discriminated in the attacks. I mean, basically, the Israelis have dropped the equivalent of, I think, a couple of nuclear weapons in terms of tons of explosives on Gaza. We're talking about a very densely populated area of the world, one of the most densely populated urban areas in the world, and massive, massive bombing of that area. So, you know, it's not at all surprising tens of thousands have been killed. And so, you know, the reality of that is when there are thousands and thousands of babies and toddlers, who've died, who, you know, the images can be seen on the screen, the images are circulating on social media. So many crippled people, so many dead people. I mean, it's just to try to counteract the reality of that with the propaganda offensive is very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, propaganda is a very powerful tool, but it's extraordinarily difficult. And for Greenblatt and some of the others like that, to basically identify criticism of the Israeli current policies with anti-Semitism means that basically to be opposed to, as some people have pointed out, what Greenblatt is saying is that a po- being opposed to baby killing is anti-Semitism. It's the new definition of anti-Semitism. <laughs> and that's a very, very counterproductive approach to take. You no, know, seriously. I mean, one thing I pointed out in my article is that, you know, when you look at, for example, the history of anti-Semitism, And you go past the rhetoric, you go past basically the sort of the media concoction that you read in the press, you really find out that much of the previous history of anti-Semitism is as utterly distorted and unrealistic as what they're trying to promote right now. In other words, so many of the famous cases in the past are very different than what they're imagined to be. And so, you know, by opening up this can of worms, by changing the definition of anti-Semitism, to being something that virtually everybody in the world would find horrifying. I mean, basically slaughtering the helpless civilians of Gaza, including women and children. Under those circumstances, I think it raises the danger that people will begin to investigate the concept more carefully and find out many open many doors that, you know, I think, for example, the ADO and other groups like that would prefer to remain closed. So yeah. it's a risky stat- strategy on their part. I'm not saying it it's certain to fail because, you know, media is a very powerful tool, especially media backed by the force of law. But I mean, they're taking enormous risks by following that approach in the United States and in Europe. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, it's I mean, it shows how desperate
0: they are. Indeed. And I want to talk a little bit more about that history, too. There's a couple other points here <clears> on <throat> just like, you know, recent developments that I want to go through more in, in part one here. But the piece that we're talking about, and Ron does is a, is a great uh, job here, and again, going through a lot of the history uh, you know, of this, too, and the you know the anti-Semitism history, uh, it's called American Gaza and the Anti-Semitism Hoax. I think there's a few guys who want to listen to it in the background. Uh, you, there's an audio player there, too, so check that out. Uh, and overall, just check out UNS.com. It's a, it's a critical... Uh, voice, a critical outlet, really, to give a voice to a lot of the uh, people out there, dissidents, if you will, that are banned. There's some left-wing voices on there, there's right-wing voices, uh, all kinds of good stuff. The UNS Review, for those of you who don't know, I think most of you guys are familiar with it. Uh, Is there there anything else you'd like to plug here before we take a short break, uh, Ron? Do you have something else uh, you're working on? You you do have a couple of books out there, right? Oh,
1: uh, sure. I mean, what I've done, actually, over the last um, year or so, is collect together a large number of my different essays into print collections. So um, they're available on Amazon. You can also download them as eBooks for free on the website. And uh, there's really quite a lot of content uh, grouped into a number of different subjects. In fact, you know, there's enough material that there's actually about 10 or 12 separate print collections and uh, probably about 15 or 20 separate ebooks and again you can very easily download the ebooks for free read them in your eplayer or buy the print collections on amazon
0: yeah f- uh, it's great pieces on there the other day i came across was a larry romanoff one piece he wrote the richest man in the world and i started reading it was a, again it was a long uh, fairly long piece right Twenty-one thousand words But it was about, you know, the gold and all this. It was like, fascinating piece. I don't have time to finish the whole thing yet, but I have it bookmarked here. I'm going to go through it. It was like, holy crap, some of this... And I've heard some of the rumors of this too, but just to mention one example of like some of the great stuff that's on uh, on ons.com right there but anyway that's that's a fascinating piece all right we'll add a link to this obviously down below we'll add a link to the the books uh, that ron has written as well or the compilation here really that i mentioned uh and we'll take a quick short break and then we'll return a little bit more and talk more about the history and some of the ways forward uh, you know for israels and the Greenblatts too i'd say because they're losing that narrative so stay with us ron stay with us everybody we'll be right back in part two Thank you for watching ladies and gentlemen please join us in part two together with ron uns as we talk more about the future of israel how they're losing the narrative and really what kind of lies ahead as well we also look back historically and look at some of the supposed examples of uh, so-called anti-semitism uh, ron brings up three examples the bolshevik revolution or kind of overall what happened in russia and then we also look at the dreyfus affair and then the uh, leo frank mary fagan story this is of course the uh, the rape there uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, it was that event that actually created the ADL. Now, it was called the ADL of B'nai B'rith at that time, but they uh, took that away for some reason. Uh, but yeah, so we look at those three examples and also kind of uh, talk about this thing that, it, that there wasn't any in that sense that historic was described as anti-Semitism that drove those types of cases. Uh, but in some regards, it was some of the actions. It was some of the behavior after those events had happened that actually caused the supposed, you know, quote unquote, anti-Semitism. In other words, there wasn't a problem to begin with, but then it was a certain set of behaviors that actually drove uh, that suspicion or drove those types of reactions. Uh, so it's, it's uh, fascinating hearing about that. So join us in part two for more about that with Ron Ans please support red ice with a membership we need your support we want your support we want to continue to grow we're only here because of you we don't have any major sponsors we don't have angel investors and things like that so we need your support to stay alive and do it well and continue thriving please sign up for a membership redicemembers.com you can also get a membership on subscribestar that's subscribestar.com red ice you can get it on odyssey that's odyssey.com forward slash at red ice or you can get it on our locals. That's redicetv.locals.com. We just started adding uh, content there as well. So that's a couple of methods. You can sign up for a couple of ways. You can also become a producer or an executive producer if you want a shout out at the end of the show. We also want to a little bit more input from you as a producer or executive producer as well. We'd love to hear some of your guest suggestions, a particular guests you'd like us to reach out to, uh, what kind of topics would you like us to cover when we do our live streams, uh, and of course our members exclusive show, Western Warrior, which is uh, another thing you get access to as a member. It's really our flagship show, so definitely check that out. Uh, whether you're new or been with us for some time, do consider it please support red Ice. thank you to our executive producers today t lothrop stoddard v miller resin revolt good luck lap jake red pill rundown french 47 mark smith no one jeebs president obunga mongoose william fox angry white soccer mom the second wanderer operation werewolf the ride never ends francis parker yaki dillabob Last Place Simp, Joseph Hart, Purple Haze. We also have Colin Marriott, Commie Combo Deal, The Dearborn Toxic Event, Brendan Anthony, and 55 Club Books. Also thanks to our producers, Mr. Walker, 696, Johansson, Leroy Dumond, Snarkpup, Eyes Open, Mr. Lemry, Yuri New, Obadiah Hakeswell, Perfect Brute, Single Action Army, HP Lovecraft, Dixie Drone Force, and 55 Club Books. Com. Thank you so much to our producers and of course to our executive producers as well. If you'd like one of those, you can get it at redashmembers.com you can get it at Subscribestar, or odyssey it's a great way to support us get some resources our way make sure we can continue to grow despite censorship and despite financial institutions and services have tried to shut us down we're only here because of you so thank you guys for your support very very much Uh, if you don't want a membership a great way to support is of course to donate as well redice.tv forward slash donate that's a great way but we would love to offer you uh, the members show and of course the second hour of uh, most of our interviews that we do as well, plus other exclusive content we do for you guys, so please uh, get a membership. Uh, we'll see you guys for part two with Ron Ans coming up right now, redeyesmembers.com or some of the other methods. We'll see you right over there after this.